Good morning, good morning, good morning. I hope you all have your uh, beverage of choice with you right now from me in the morning, of course, like millions of other people. I have some uh, Pete's Coffee. Pete's was the uh, forerunner for Starbucks, was the inspiration for Starbucks. Uh, Howard Schultz was working in some capacity uh, for a coffee company, and he had to go to Italy to uh, get some uh, espresso machines, I think, and tasted some really good coffee in Italy. And when he was in the States, um, had some Pete's, and Pete's was putting out good coffee early on before good coffee was a thing, uh, somewhat similar to the craft beer market. And uh, Pete's was the precursor uh, to Starbucks. Uh, so Pete's is still around. It doesn't only roast its beans heavily in the Italian style anymore. It has other roast variations and different types of beans. So it's really, really good coffee. If you like coffee, uh, Pete's has a good program to send you coffee free in the mail. It's pretty affordable, even with inflation. So if you listen to this in the evening, hopefully you're enjoying something that you uh, that you like, such as a beer, a cocktail, a bourbon, perhaps, a glass of wine, orange juice, tomato juice, prune juice. could be whatever you're into. Tea. Some people love tea. I like tea once in a while. I don't love it. I'll drink tea at night sometimes or in the evening because uh, it doesn't have quite a caffeine load. So I am enjoying Pete's today. I have to apologize ahead of time. This is soaring with sinuses again. Uh, my sinuses tend to run a bit when I um, when I drink coffee. And uh, I don't know what else to do. I like drinking coffee and doing this podcast. And I like drinking coffee uh, and doing this podcast while the coffee's still just... Uh, you know, just starting. It seems to work. It seems to be a good thing to pair together. So today we're doing the lily of the field and the bird of the air. I am really, really intent on focusing specifically on this book and not jumping around to the pile of other sword books that I have sitting here. I want to get through this once and for all. I was jumping around quite a bit with, uh, uh, with Soren and social media, and again, it's been really, really instructive um, recently. I've had to take my own advice in terms of how to interact on social media. Uh, we counsel ourselves. Uh, John Calvin said, I preach the gospel to myself. And it's good to uh, to remember what we believe and then reflect upon it and then act accordingly. Act consistent to our beliefs. All of us struggle with that. It's not a perfect image, our beliefs and our actions, but they should overlap quite a bit despite human sinfulness and imperfection and finiteness. So Soren uh, wrote this book uh, and it was ready for publication in 1813, uh, 1848, and uh, it was ready for the printer. This was seven years after his breakup with his fiancée, Regina, where he acted like a a jerk pretty much uh, but it was to hide his feelings and his feelings of uh, that maybe marriage wasn't for him 
And rather than him being honest with Regina about that, which I struggle understanding why he couldn't just be honest, but let's give Soren the right to be human. Soren decided to act cold and calculating and mean to her to break the bond, uh, to break the bond that she had with him. And it was a hard bond to break because she loved him and perhaps loved him for the rest of his life and her life. Uh, she lived uh, into the 1900s sometime and gained some notoriety over time as being uh, the woman that um, Soren had broken up with. Soren was coming into favor a little bit after his demise. It took uh, several decades for people to really appreciate his work. And then Regina kind of had some reflected glory there, I suppose, in a way. But she didn't seem like she was milking it for all it's worth. You know, sometimes you have people that are connected to a famous person and they uh they want to do all they can to uh bask in the reflected glory uh, like patrick mahomes brother kind of the quarterback from the chiefs his brother's a bit of a but a bit of a publicity hound it seems like so april 13th 1848 uh soren is already uh in the battle with the corsair which commenced in 1846 because Soren challenged the satirical newspaper rag to take him on. And Soren got more than he bargained for because they had a secret weapon uh, caricaturist who made fun of Soren's physical ailments and disabilities. It was rather cruel and unusual. It's a cheap shot. You know, when people resort to insults that they've essentially lost the argument, we don't see it that way, but that's what it is. If somebody becomes very, very insulting, that's a concession that their arguments aren't that strong. We have to hold people to the standard that if they can't make their points without being insulting, that they need to cease. They need to shut up and move on because they've already shown they're not capable of handling the discussion in a constructive fashion. And we really have to hold to that. Somehow insults have become acceptable. I told somebody recently on Twitter because she was talking about uh, Trump owning the liberals. I said, you know, Trump has uh, has taught uh, Christians it's okay to hate. And I didn't hear back from her because I was making a point. Like, you think this is great that you cheer on Trump from the sidelines as he insults people and infers all kinds of things about people. And you think it's great and you applaud it. And uh, let's call it what it is. It's hatred. It's hatred, man. Now I have to be careful about not hating them. That's a struggle for me because I, I do not, I hate Donald Trump. I hate him. I hate for what he stands for. I don't just hate what he does. I, I hate the man. I hate him. And God is working on me not to hate the man because I do hate him. And I'll be honest about it. Okay, again, I mentioned if uh, one is not a Christian, ultimately Kierkegaard will not only, will only make sense in parts. You won't get the entire picture of who Soren is. I think uh, Soren's Christianity has been disembodied from his writings and, you know, existentialist. Uh, both in the past and the present, see Soren as kind of the patriarch of existentialism, which he is, but they want to take away the Christianity. They want to take away the faith. They want to take away all the biblical references, which means you might as well cut off a leg of a, a racehorse and tell him to run. That's not how Soren operates. You need all, all aspects of who he is as an individual. Uh, so people appropriate Kierkegaard in spots and in places. They like to make memes about things that he said, but they don't put those pieces like pieces in a puzzle to form a big picture. So 
this is not me that's going into this today. This is Soren. This is Soren who's in this exposition in terms of um, the Christian application. Uh, his books, Lily of the Field and The Bird of the Air, Three Godly Discourses, is a good example of this Christian writing. Now, Soren became more dedicated to his faith after the Corsair went after him because it caused uh, people in Copenhagen to make fun of him and to make him an outsider and to persecute him in a way. I don't think he was physically ever in danger. Uh, but they made life for him very miserable, which really, really focused Soren on individualism and a person's calling before God. Persecution will do that. You'll find out who your friends are. If you're going through a hard time and it's not popular to, to join you, You'll find out who you, who has your back pretty quick. Just like if you have to move your furniture from one house to another and you have to move all your possessions. You'll find out who your friends are pretty quick if you give them enough time. You can't ask them the day before. But if you say, hey, I'm moving in two months and you get the word out to your friends, the people that show up are probably your friends. And the people that don't probably are not your friends. I know it's a bit of a, a stereotype and a generalization. But persecution. Say, so if you want to know who your friends are, ask to be picked up at picked up at the airport same thing because it inconveniences people people who care about you are willing to be inconvenienced uh, read, reading Soren also requires patience uh, he makes his points and then returns to the same points over again so it's very redundant in one way but he's basically building his nest and it's frustrating because I'm like I get it I want to move on Soren comes back to it because I think he's saying, did you really, really get it? <laughs> when I'm talking about being silent, I'm not just suggesting it. This is an imperative. This is a command to be silent before God. Soren um, does not let the reader off easily. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't um, downplay what he's getting at. He's a bit indirect at times, uh, but he hammers home the idea that we need to be silent before God. So we can listen to God. We can be open to instruction. We can reflect on our own status before God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's ultimately the gospel right there. The gospel offer comes to those who know they need it. It will not come to those who do not think they need it. That's just the way it rolls, man. So we listen to God. The ultimate uh, purpose of that is to obey. And he gets into ambivalence here. So let me get to ambivalence. He's got a little bit of a verse in ambivalence, uh, which is good. And we'll start off with this here. Where there is an ambivalence, uh, there temptation is. And that is a, that is a maxim. Uh, think about if you were dating somebody that you were ambivalent about. You're probably still looking over the corner and around the corner and above, above the uh, horizon for what else is out there, especially in this era of online dating where you can look at thousands and thousands of profiles. Um, so somebody who's ambivalent about a relationship is, is easily tempted. Somebody who's ambivalent about their marriage is easily tempted. Somebody who's ambivalent about their job is easily tempted to get another job or do something sketchy in their job, to be haphazard, to not work hard, to come in late, to steal from their employers, all kinds of things. Soren's making a point that ambivalence is where the seeds of temptation grow. All right, Just like the garden out back, there's good seeds out there and there's weeds, and they're in a battle. And the corn has not yet shown its face. 
but it's working on it. It's going to be about a week before it, 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 it comes above the surface. But, you know, weeds and the tares that Jesus talks about also grow. And uh, what, what ultimately keeps weeds from uh, establishing a stronghold in a garden is that it has healthy plants that are stronger. Uh, so who do you feed? Who do you give the water to? And who do you give the sunlight to? And weeds are tricky because they get intertwined with the uh, good plants. So you have to be very careful about pulling them out. Sometimes you can't. So be very careful about having them there to start with. So ambivalence is where that garden starts to go south. We're open to temptation. So get ready for Soren to bring to bring on the heat here. Where there is ambivalence, there temptation is, and it is only altogether too easily the stronger there. But where ambivalence is, in one way or another, deep down there is also disobedience. So ambivalence is just the outward manifestation of disobedience internally. So it's a lot more dark than it looks. Ambivalence looks very bland and looks very um, paltry, but do not disregard... uh, Soren's observation that it's drawing off something much darker and much deeper than mere, like, oh, so, uh, whatever type of thing. There is nothing whatever ambivalent in the lily and the bird precisely because unconditional obedience is present deep down and everywhere. And it is precisely for this reason because there is nothing ambivalent in the lily and the bird that is an impossible to lead the lily and the bird into temptation where there is no ambivalence, Satan is powerless. So, you know, Soren's being a bit politically incorrect here. He's talking about Satan, the force of evil that's described in the Bible, the, hum- the, uh, the, um, the archangel Satan who has human followers. Satan is powerless. Where there is no ambivalence, temptation is as powerless as a bird catcher with his snares when there's no birds and no there are no birds to be found so think about a bird catcher with a snare a bird who is full and content will not will not be uh, found by the, the the bird catcher so we're at 14 minutes here i'm going to read a large section of soren so Got to take a deep breath and a shot of coffee here. There we go. It's so delicious, this coffee. (laughs) No one can serve two masters. He must either love one and hate the other or hold fast to the one and despise the other. So I'll just take a quick aside. You know, when people talk about having a side hustle, it's their primary job. Be very careful. Your side hustle will start to steal into your primary job. And I always felt when I worked as a professional that my employer who signed the check had my time and had my energy. And I had side projects that I was working on, but I, I put them on hold for quite some time once I came to the realization that they were just detracting me and, and distracting me from my primary calling, which was to be a school counselor. So all this talk about having a side hustle. Now, sometimes people have to do that. They have to pick up a second job because they can't make enough money. That's different. You know, you, sh- you might have two masters, but it's you're being forced to by the messed up economy that we have now or whatever. 
But if you are being paid by your employer and it's a living wage, you owe your employer obedience. You must serve them completely uh, within reason, of course. Your family's still important. Your relaxation's still important. But when you're supposed to work, you work. You're not on your phone. You're not screwing around, hanging out at the, uh, at the coffee machine. You're not uh, you know, wasting your time cruising the internet on your uh, issued laptop and doing things you shouldn't be doing, like checking Netflix and watching a series and things like that. People do all this stuff. I used to work with people sometimes in my career. had bad habits. One guy was ensconced in the bathroom. He'd be in there reading the paper, man. He'd be there reading, reading the paper for a long time because I'd see him crawl out of the bathroom at some point, be in there, be in there for an hour when he didn't have an assignment. <laughs> and then he'd come out. I knew what he was up to. No one could serve two masters. You must either love the one and hate the other or hold fast to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon was a term for money in the in the uh, in the uh, New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's uh, an Aramaic word. An Aramaic is kind of a street Hebrew uh, that Jesus spoke in. He didn't speak in classical Hebrew. He spoke in Aramaic. Not God in the world, not good and evil. Thus, there are two powers, God and the world, good and evil. And the reason a human being can only serve one master is certainly that these two powers, even though one power is infinitely stronger than the other, one and are in mortal combat with one another. So let me try that again. God in the world, good and evil, and the, re- and the reason a human being can only serve one master is certainly that these two powers, even though one power is infinitely stronger than the other, are in mortal combat with one another. Mortal combat. Uh, this enormous danger, a danger in which a human being is indeed situated by virtue of being a human being, and Jane, a danger that the lily and the bird are spared in their unconditional obedience, which is happy innocence, for neither God and the world nor good and evil are fighting over them. This enormous danger that the human being is situated between these two enormous powers and the choice is left to him or her, this enormous danger is that one must either love or hate, that not to love is to hate. For these two powers are so hostile that the least inclination to one side is regarded by the other side as unconditional opposition. If a human being forgets this absolute danger in which he is situated, and note well the attempt to forget a danger of this sort is certainly no useful protection against it. If a human being forgets that he is situated in this enormous danger, if he believes he is not in danger, if he even says peace and no danger, then the words of the gospel must seem to him as a foolish exaggeration. C.S. Lewis talks about Satan in some of his writings. I don't remember specifically where. But he mentions that Satan is not God's equal. That was the uh, condition or the reason for Satan's expulsion from heaven or eternity is he wanted to be God's equal. He's an angel. He's an archangel. So he's an angel of angels, so to speak. And C.S. Lewis points out that if you were to kind of compare Satan to another uh, figure in the Bible, it would be like the archangel Michael or Gabriel. And they appear in the Bible in certain junctures in certain places. One of them is the, is the protector of the Jewish people, uh, which is a difficult concept because the Jews certainly have had 
their share of persecution and awful events happened to them. But God made very clear that the Jews' protection is in Jesus, and that's not being anti-Semitic. Jesus was Jewish. The early believers were all Jewish. Christianity is a Jewish religion. It's not a. It's not something that the Greeks came up with. It came from the seed of Abraham, as they say. So uh, when Soren is getting into this war- warfare mentality, he is saying these two forces are in opposition. So um, Satan wants to be like God, and that's why he fell. But he is not God. He he ultimately is not the determiner, but he plays a substantial role in tempting and seducing people to believe in the world. So ultimately, mammon, money, the word for money in the Bible, means uh, the the debasing influence of material wealth. This comes from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, So the debasing influence of material wealth. I grew up in a very, very wealthy area. I think I've mentioned this before, the United States and the world. And I saw money do really, really awful things to people. Uh, You need a certain amount of money to pay your bills, to put a roof over your head and clothe your children and feed your children. And to take care of your obligations like having a dependable car. There's nothing worse if you're you're strapped as having undependable transportation, not knowing if your car is going to get you to work that day. I've been in that situation uh, when I was a new professional. I had a car that was very undependable and would break down at all kinds of places and all kinds of times. So you need a certain amount of money to insulate yourself against the ravages of the chaos of life. But beyond that, it starts to become perhaps a an idol. And I say perhaps because I think it is possible to be wealthy and not to believe that money will solve all your problems. It often creates a lot of problems. Look at what happens when a very rich person dies whose uh, will is not particularly clear about who gets what. You see the sharks come out. All kinds of relatives and all kinds of people want their hand on that money. It brings out the worst in people. And if you happen to work in a situation where there's a lot of money around, everybody wants to be a chief and nobody wants to be an Indian, as the old saying goes. And that's a little bit violation of PC. But money makes people think they're all in charge, and there's one way to ruin an operation is not to have somebody in charge of it. Okay, now you still want to listen to your employees, you still want to listen to the people that work for you or work with you, but ultimately there's a reason why there's a principal in a school. There are some issues that have to be resolved by one person, it just can't be done by committee. The committee can make recommendations, as a school counselor I always like giving advice to the principal, But I fully acknowledge that he could blow me off and do what he wanted. My job was to advise him, just like my job was to advise the students. In the end, I tried to be persuasive and think about what was good for the school, not what was good for me necessarily, what was good for the students of the building. Because ultimately, the school is about serving the students. It's not about serving the staff. It's not about serving the principal or the school board. It's about serving the students what's best for them. That doesn't mean that you give everything to the kids that they want. It just means that you serve them in a way that helps them grow up to be adults, which is the goal of raising children is to raise them and not to keep them in perpetuity of adolescence. So we're at 2337. I think that's about enough for today. Hope everybody's doing well. I appreciate the listen.